Uh, we are doing a series called Founders, in which I am trying to focus attention on people who have given in deep and very significant ways here at Bergen Park Church. Uh, I had a letter, here are the Deweys back there, uh, an email, sorry, no letters anymore, um, an email from Fred and Carlene warning me that it better be into the praise of God and not into the praise of the Deweys. So would you all please say praise God? Praise God. Satisfied? <laughs> Because <laughs> it should be, and they really mean this. If you want to know about Fred and Carlene, you need to know about children, especially abandoned or children that need assistance. So Fred and Carlene had six of their own, and that wasn't enough. They fostered and they adopted four others. Uh, this has been, uh, th their home is not a home, it's a compound, okay? <laughs> Almost like a barracks. And the time I toured it, they found bedrooms to go just about everywhere. Uh, now they are retired, but I just want to say this. They have not just um, done things overseas, which I'll explain, but they've done things in some of the needier parts of, of our Denver area, uh, setting up a parenting or mothering center, as well as a place that kids could come to after, uh, after school. But something happened to them that changed everything. And that was a trip to the Philippines. Fred was a guest professor at a university and as he was there, he went to an orphanage with Carlene, held a baby and from that time on, whenever he holds babies, he sings, Jesus loves me, this I know. And out of that started a ministry to needy children around the world. Into the 90s now, uh, they hear about the needs as Fred is on another uh, exchange professorship in Hungary, in the, in the Budapest area, and they hear about the needs across the border in Romania. And they hop on a train, the idiots, and they go. And they go not knowing what was waiting for them, not knowing what was there, their passports are taken. For, I mean, if it could go wrong and cause fear, it went wrong. But there they are, and that started something that just changed their lives. And it changed also, I would say, the whole tenor or fiber of Bergen Park Church as many of us found ourselves going with them. Uh, they've done more. Fred has been an elder. Carlene is a gifted counselor. Uh, so uh, Fred is, uh, I said, an elder. He has taught. And there's some other things down here very uh, that I have just forgotten. Um, but in our local church, when it came to launching an effective uh, missions program, Fred and Carlene were also there uh, leading the way. So Fred and Carlene, we honor you as founders and we say praise God for you. Praise God. Yeah. <laughs> Diane and Tom Povermiller, please stand up. Well, Tom has been a voice of reason uh, every time we've talked about our facility. And he was one of those few voices who said at first, have you ever thought of just tearing it down and starting all over? We presented to him several options and he was always as someone involved in construction willing to step in and, and give his input. He also wrote my checks for a couple of years, so I love Tom. <laughs> now, <laughs> 
On one of those first trips to Romania, Fred and Carlene came back and shared with us, and really it was from an African-American church that came to this church to share what had happened, and Diane heard it. Now, Diane had been here, I guess, Diane and Tom, the week before I arrived in 1997. But um, as, uh, as Diane heard it, you need to know Diane is all about children. So she has taught in our uh, uh, children's church for over 20 years and just recently retired. Uh, we credit you for that and loving children, but when she heard about the disadvantaged and abandoned children of Romania, she went to Fred and Carlene and asked if she could go, and she never stopped. So she's going several times a year still to these kids in their 20s, but who have an emotional life probably still in their teens. And... Um, uh, Diane also shares the Long Service Medal or, long, or Long Suffering Medal because she was the uh, person who worked closest to me as the church admin for over seven years. She shares that with uh, Joan Hahn, and uh, anybody that can work with me for seven years deserves a medal, right, Barb? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Again, another founder here at Bergen Park Church. Um, you know, these people are just uh, people, uh, you might say, believers in Jesus Christ, but also followers of Jesus Christ. And Christ opens ways for them that aren't for everybody, but, they but it suits them. And that's the way these people have served. And we are enriched because of it. Now, uh, we started with memorials, okay? And uh, in Washington, D.C. I have not been to Washington, D.C. once uh, or since this was built. But in, uh, in the early 1990s, uh, the Vietnam War Memorial came to our small town of Yucca Valley, small town of only about 20,000. And it set up shop. It's about a uh, three-quarter size replica of the real one. And I was asked, you know, you're a pastor, you must know how to counsel. I was asked to be a grief counselor for several shifts in the 12-day period it was there. So um, I volunteered for those shifts, and I noticed something that I did not expect, that there was a continual stream of mainly men, in fact, exclusively men, who came to experience this unique memorial uh, that they could bring to different locations. Uh, the memorial itself is a wall of black basalt, or a rock-like basalt, uh, and it's about six feet tall, and on it are the names of 58,318 names. They're listed in chronicle, uh, chronological order in terms of when they died, in a period of over 20 years. The, um, each panel, and it's put together in, in a, not a 90 degree uh, angle, but about a 125 degree angle. Each panel on it, uh, the basalt has been positioned or uh, polished in such a way that when you look for a name and you see a name, you see your reflection right over that name. The idea of bringing a connection to someone you knew by name and your own self. 
So I'm there doing grief counseling, as they say. And these men would come in all sorts of uh, varieties of clothing and transportation. I saw everything from Mercedes-Benz to Harley motorcycles and a few hitchhikers. They just find their way there. They walk up to the wall and to the welcome desk, and they have a list of names that they want to look up, sometimes just one. My job was to look up that name and find out its location chronologically, in other words, which panel they could find it on and about what height in the middle or whatever, and we could do that. So once I gave them that position, I offered to guide them and stand alongside them to make sure they found it. No thanks. At least 50 times, no thanks. Women, it's a guy thing, okay? Chances are I might be crying when I find that name. So they all go and search for it alone. And when they do, it's the most amazing sight because their hands are roaming name after name until they find the one they're looking for and then their hand stops. They see their reflection over that name. And then once their hand stops, there is this uh, period of time in which there's no movement at all. Some drop to their knees, put their heads down. Some just stay there and put their head against the wall. But all of them, their memories go back to this friend who died. And here's the other thought they all have, and I lived. They cannot explain it. So in that season of reflection, many bring a, some uh, tra a tracing paper and a pencil to, to rub onto the paper, and they try to get the inscriptions of the names of either their family member or their buddy. And every time when I see a person in grief, I approach a grief-stricken mourner, and every time a hand go up, goes up and says, please leave me alone. They wanted to be alone in their thoughts and their grief. There's not another memorial that elicits such a response that, and that is so popular as this traveling version. And this one seems to capture my generation of baby boomers. When you think about it, we construct memorials to honor a certain person, Lincoln, Washington, Jefferson, uh, or a group of people such as all of the fallen of that war. But we also must remember we channel memories through a memorial. And we understand that people come there to intertwine their stories with the one who was honored. We've reached the halfway point in the Gospel of Mark where the author has said from the very first sentence, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And now at this halfway point, the whole message of the Gospel begins to change. It alters. And so Jesus is with his, his disciples, and he's at a monument city called Caesarea Philippi. Now, to understand this passage correctly, you have to be like a real estate agent. What are the three most important things in real estate? Location, location, location. In the backdrop, when Jesus begins to speak, is this monument city. Now, it's a monument, and for those of you who are cynics, you'll figure out why. It's a monument built to remember Caesar Augustus, the Augustus meaning the greatest of all Caesars, but also the first, 
and also Herod Philip, a more local leader. And Herod Philip uh, proposes to build this city and to share the honor. Now, why does any little king want to share honor with Caesar? You cynics, you got it? Can you guess? That's right. If you name it after Caesar, bags of money will follow from the central government. And so he builds this city, which is less than 20 years old as Jesus is there. And it is all, you know, everything de dealing with the finest construction and honor of Caesar. It is the most beautiful, the, the newest. It's like going to the parade of homes this month. And everything you've wanted to see that's going on, everything that's good about a city, they put into this one. Well, it is in this backdrop where Jesus is looking at his disciples and he begins to speak to them. But behind him is this monument to Caesar. And so he asks the question of the ages. And when I say that, I mean it's, an, it's a question that wasn't just asked then, but it's a question that is still continuing to be asked today. And so it will be asked for as long as humanity is on this planet. And as he gets there, he's looking at his disciples, and he asks that great question, sitting them down. He says, who do men say that I am? Well, that's a great question. Who do men say that Jesus is? And understand what he's asking here is an opinion poll. Uh, anonymous. Don't mention names, but as we've been walking together for these last months and probably a couple years, what have you heard about me? What is it that people are saying is my identity? Who do people say I am? Now, they have to answer that question from their limited background, but there is no doubt that at this moment, all of Israel knows of Jesus and tens of thousands have actually seen him teaching or healing. His name is mentioned at this time and in this area uh, more than Philip and more than Caesar Augustus himself, who's been dead about 20 years. So the disciples begin to give the answers that they've been hearing. John the baptizer, who months earlier had been beheaded. Elijah, the role that John the baptizer filled from the prophets. And others say that, no, he's just another of the great prophets come back. What, uh, what uh, these people are saying, they are saying to the disciples, and the disciples are simply referring back uh, what they have heard. Now jump forward if you can, uh, 41 years ago, uh, February 1976, I'm sitting in a hot, steamy summer uh, uh, teaching room in Sydney, Australia, and we're studying the Gospel of Mark with our high schoolers. And we're in chapter 8. And as we're studying it, uh, I do something stupid. I think Barb warned me, don't ever do that again. Um, but I do it, and I, I, uh, I go, oh my goodness, should we check reservations to make sure that we can go home if they're thrown out of the country? Uh, we're studying it, and I, I'm trying to make the, the Gospel of Mark relevant, a book 2,000 years old, relevant to students today, and especially to high school students. So uh, I ask that question. According to the people you know, who is Jesus? And there is a stunned silence. It's called the silence of ignorance. 
Why? Because they've never asked their friends who is Jesus. Maybe you haven't either. So as, as I mentioned that, and I, you know, I asked that question, why not? Jesus asked it, why can't I? I asked the question, and through their hesitancy, I say, hmm, if you don't know, can I give a suggestion? Why don't this week you go to your friends and you ask that question just that Jesus asked? Who do you say that Jesus is? Now I could see fear, anger, uh, anxiety, all sorts of things in their faces. Uh, so I dare them. And I didn't realize in Australia, you never dare people because they'll, you know, it's a part of their culture. And, and when I still see there's this hesitancy in them, then I do what you should never do. I double dare them. <laughs> and that week, they went to every person in their high school, two public high schools, every person in their high school that they could get with, and they simply asked that question. More than that, they went to their coaches, their teachers, their counselors, and one got an appointment with the principal. <laughs> then they went to their parents, and I started getting phone calls. <laughs> what do you mean having my children ask me, what do I think about Jesus? And I mentioned that, you know, it's in the Gospel of Mark. All I'm doing is asking them to do what Jesus did. Oh, so if Jesus did it, it's okay, you know. I said, well, but still, you don't talk about your faith in Sydney, Australia. But you have a faith. So we get back together. And we spend one whole night not going on to the next passage of, of Mark, but instead, we spend one whole night hearing all the answers. Now, the answers are not the same as those of Jesus' day because the answers are more secular. And I want, to, I want you to hear this. For the first time ever, one of our staff members came to me and said, I asked 18 students who they believed Jesus was. And I heard from two, and it's a, he said, I couldn't believe this. Two of them had never heard of Jesus. Wow, two. So the answers were, don't know, uh, a great teacher, a moral leader, a religious figure, the founder of some religion, I think Christianity, and they gave titles like that. Well, so, you know, the, the situation is entirely set up. These high schoolers have done their job, but Jesus is not yet done with his disciples. So once that is done, now that the opinion poll is over, he looks at his disciples and he decides, like faith should do, let's get real personal. And he looks at his disciples and he says, well, how about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say is, you know, what is my identity according to you? Now, they've been with Jesus nearly two years. So he's saying this is not about people's opinions. This is about your convictions. You are the most personally experienced with me. How about you? Who do you say I am? By the way, have you answered that question yet? I mean, from the credible resources that you have, have you ever gone beyond just, well, my friend said this, or I had this bad experience, or you, you have to understand the most credible resources we have are the enduring accounts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Now, of those, Luke was the researcher. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had personal experience with Jesus. And so as you read them, you might ask the question, well, should I be reading a, a biased narrative? Well, friends, if you're inspired by the Holy Spirit and you spend three years with a person, are you going to be biased? Yeah, of course. They're all sold out. Yes, you should listen to them. Nobody knows Jesus better in those three years than these three men. And no one had ever done better research than Luke. So that question is asked. And, 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 and what we are left then is these three eyewitness accounts and one very solid one. And these three men over the years have had eyes to listen and their ears uh, I mean, eyes to see and their ears to listen, and they are now sold out that Jesus is God's son. So it's time for one of them to speak. And of course, Peter, who's not afraid of being first and not afraid of being stupid, he speaks up. And he, he answers the question, who do, I, who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Christ. Or maybe in that language, you are the Messiah that we have been waiting for. And the amazing thing is he gets it right. When he says, you are the Christ or you are the Messiah, Peter gets the answer right. But the depth of what's involved there, the implications, I'm not sure he quite understands. So Jesus affirms them in the Gospel of Matthew. And he replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but from my Father in heaven. So here's Peter. Not only did you get the answer right, but God told me. Not only you know, is my information good, but, but my gosh, Jesus, who I just called the Christ, is saying, God's speaking to me. Wouldn't that get to your ego? It sure gets to mine. That's why it never happens. Okay. So he gets the title right, but he gets the meaning behind it all wrong. Tell me, have you ever had an experience where it turns out you were right, but you wish you were wrong? Some of those might have been in hospitals, sheriff stations. You got it right, but oh, I am so sorry. Well, Peter is okay with the information, but he's ignorant about what this, the Christ will experience. Peter believes that he's on a fast track to glory and power and status and wealth and that he will rule with Christ in Jerusalem. And friends, he's half right, but his sense of timing is terrible. Jesus will rule in Jerusalem, just not here and not yet. So with his divine identity now revealed, Jesus sits his disciples down and he begins to prep them on what to expect. Now that you know who I am, here's what you should expect. Bags of money flowing to you. Thrones being set before you. People coming to you asking for favors and, 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 and putting bribe, bribe money in your hands. People talking about you behind your back as, you, if you are the, as if you aren't the smartest and most holy person ever to, ever to live on this planet. Uh, that would be nice, but that's not the way it happened. Here's what Jesus says as we go uh, to Mark. In verse 31, he says, then he then began to teach right after um, 
right after Peter says, you are the Christ. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. From a hero to a goat in 10 seconds, you know, it's... I love that man because I'm just like him. Um, so when, when Jesus says, okay, now that you've got it right, do you have the implications right? And the answer is probably not. Probably not. With the divine identity now revealed, and he sits down with his disciples, and he, and he speaks what I just read to you. He's trying to explain to them that both the religious and the political establishment will not just oppose him, but reject him, persecute him, and kill him. I don't think any of them, when they signed up to Jesus' invitation to come and follow him, that they were thinking that that would be how it would end. He foretells also of his resurrection but it is the suffering and death that catches their attention. This is not my Messiah, is what they are thinking. Hey, every time we elect a new president, the losing side, you know what they always say? Well, some. Well, he's not my president, right? So every eight years you get another chance, right? Okay. He's not my president. Well, I don't care. He's the president, okay? Uh, so, so here's Peter. Uh, he's, he's hearing what Jesus is saying, what it means to be a follower of his, and he goes, that's not my Messiah. My Messiah is not going to suffer. And he's trying to explain to them that if you are going to follow me, you will be following a defeated character, at least on the, have, on, on the earthly realm. So the first implication for his identity is he'll be defeated. He'll be executed. He will not rule, but he will be killed like all the other enemies of Rome. The second implication, he gives in just a couple other uh, uh, verses down the road. There he goes. Now, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. First of all, you're going to be experiencing defeat in your life by my being the Christ and you following me. Secondly, you're going to have to deny yourself. Well, come on. This is about the gravy train, Jesus. This is about the authority and the status that come with your being the Messiah. The call to follow Jesus means self-denial and it means suffering. Now, this may be very foreign to us in our cushy environment. I understand that. Uh, I understand that, you know, we can't even pray in schools. Here at Bergen Park Church, I hear us, they're going to tax our ammunition. We can't demonstrate like we want. Um, if we speak up about Jesus and us following him and the fact that he's the Messiah, understand that we, we could get uh, rebuked or, or even fired for speaking the words of Jesus. You see, our culture wants to be boxing us in with names of our faith in Jesus that is like a rebranding. Yes, we, we are followers of Jesus. That means you're an Islamophobe. You're an anti-Semite. You're anti-choice. 
you're a bigot, you're a racist. And that's how they rebrand us. We can get penalized for following Jesus and speaking about it. We can get ostracized for it. But understand the symbol of the cross is not just self-denial, it is death. Now, I don't know of any American Christians who have died for their faith in this country, not least not recently. Um, but, uh, but also understand that of the 12 apostles, 10 of them die for their faith, and one is exiled for his faith, and he dies of old age. I do not pray that, hey, Lord, to be a follower of you, would you please persecute me more? That's stupid. But I pray for the persecuted. I'm also instructed that I'm supposed to be praying for my enemies and for those who argue about the answer to this question. And my prayer for them is not, Lord, I want to win. I want to defeat them. My prayer is that God would convict them to follow Jesus. Are there any costs that you are currently paying? Any rejection? that is currently uh, being experienced, any persecution that you are currently suffering because you are a follower of Jesus. I don't have much. Maybe you do. But if, if there is no cost, then may I suggest you learn a simple three-word question, and it'll begin. Who is Jesus? That's all you got to say. And believe me, it'll start. There's a third implication that Jesus gives two chapters later. Because he's walking with his disciples and the disciples are all talking about how great it is to be following Jesus. Whatever he said to them, they had forgotten. And, and so, you know, and they're arguing about what position they will get when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And uh, Jesus hears them. And he stops him and he goes, you know, you're, you are so focused on leadership, you don't quite understand what it means to follow me. And so he, he says, in, guys, in the world, you, you disciples, in the world, those who are, who are leaders, those who are put in authority, love to lord it over those. But it won't be so with you. Instead, he says in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. Again, look at our culture. Our culture loves leadership. Nothing wrong with that. And we define leadership with words like passion and talent and vision and determination and ability to motivate others. A good corporate leader has books written upon, uh, uh, about him or her. And, and they're written because people desire to understand what are the keys to better leadership and how can I become a better leader? Along with leadership, we think, comes success and status and wealth. But if you agree with the Son of God and you say you are following him, that Jesus has a new definition but not so with you, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Over these last 21 years here in uh, uh, Bergen Park and, and the Evergreen area, 
Uh, we've had people move in and out of our neighborhood. Uh, two of the longer-term uh, men who've moved into the neighborhood, I've been able to get into some fairly deep discussions with them. Short, but deep, okay? And I, each time I uh, pop the question, yeah, no, not will you marry me, pop the question, who do you say Jesus is? And two of the neighbors in particular were adamant. Well, I'll give you my answer, but never ask again. I'll give you my answer, but don't try and change it. So they give me their answer. He's not the Christ. He's not the Savior. He's not the one that they're going to follow. Just his moral code is all they want. So I tell them I'm available when they talk, uh, when they want to talk, and I've just prayed. And I've prayed fairly consistently especially when I see them walking around the neighborhood or when I'm walking around the neighborhood. I pray because my life is an answer to prayer of several people praying for me week by week. God used it then. Why not again? And I'm waiting for the time in which they'll finally say who Jesus is according to their understanding, and I get to explain, because I'm far superior intellectually, that... Um, that their answer is untenable. Well, one of them has wrestled with this question for at least a decade, and he finally got it right. I'm just, I'm just so overjoyed. It's just that he never came to me to get it right. <laughs> he got it right from somebody else. Oh, shoot, no, hallelujah. And so he comes to me, and, he, and he, you know, just a few years before, he's looking at me, he says, oh, Jesus was great, but he can't be God. Now I'm sitting there on his patio, and he goes, Jesus is the son of God. And if you're not preaching this, Jim, you better start, you know. And he, he starts <laughs> talking to me about how, how I'm supposed to do it. And I just smile. I just smile because God has been at work in his life. But now I get to explain, if you listen, it's time to follow Christ into defeat, into cost, into servant leadership. Father, this is a question that we will all answer eventually. And I pray for the ones who are still in process of answering. First, the focus, who is this man? And I pray that they would answer, not just with their head, but with their hearts involved. And for the ones who've answered correctly, but now experiencing some of those implications, defeat, cost, serving, I pray that this would be called their joy, their joy in following Jesus. Because then we have a disciple for life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for letting us glimpse how you bring your disciples along. Thank you that we could be right there giving the same answers, thinking through the same issues, and continue, Lord, to lead us along, we pray. In Jesus' name, God's people said.
Amen. Would those about to be baptized sort of gravitate over into this closet here? Thank you.